Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus receives an invitation to have dinner with a Pharisee and encounters an unlikely visitor. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, Looking at verse 36 again, he begins there and he says, then then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Moving on from Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees, we talked some about that last week. He's in a dialogue initially with John's disciples, and then along, you know, the crowd is gathered, they're listening to everything, and then he gets into this dialogue with the Pharisees. But but quite possibly, this is a follow-on of it all. It is quite possible that this Pharisee, who we will come to know as Simon, that's his name, because Jesus makes reference to him a little bit further down in the passage, but but it may have very well been, we don't know for certain, but it may have very well been that Simon was a part of that crowd that was watching and listening to the dialogue that Jesus was having. And now Jesus receives this invitation to come to dinner at his house. The motive, though, for his invitation isn't given to us in this passage. We don't know exactly why he invited him, but there's a lot of reasons that we could legitimately conclude. I mean, number one, could just be curiosity, right? He just may be curiosity. He may have heard things about Jesus, and and if he heard him teaching and saying things, he just may have wanted to take a closer look. Might have been association, 
It might have been about association. In other words, since Jesus is popular with the crowds, he may have wanted to take advantage of that. By having Jesus come to his house, it would give the impression to the crowds that he was kind of a follower, and the crowds then he'd get, you know, he'd move up in prestige by association with Jesus. Could be a trap. Could be an absolute trap, right? He could be inviting Jesus to his house, and we've seen the Pharisees lay traps for Jesus, and we will see them do that throughout the Gospels, but they would lay traps, and it may very well be that he invited Jesus to dinner in the hopes that Jesus would say something or do something that he could then use against him. And then finally, it could be sincere spiritual hunger. It could be more than curiosity. It could be sincere spiritual hunger. Jesus could have stirred something in this man as he heard him teach someplace along the way, kind of like Nicodemus in the book of John. You know, I always like the, the account of Nicodemus. And uh, if you guys have, have had a chance yet, I usually don't promote these kinds of things, but if you had a chance to see that series that's out called The Chosen, by the way, I have your DVDs for you guys. I need to remember to bring those in. But uh, these guys lent me that, and I watched that series. There's one season so far. They're working on a second. It's tremendous. It really is. But their interaction that Jesus has with Nicodemus in there is well laid out. But if you remember Nicodemus, I mean, he was, he was a Pharisee. And, but, but, but there was more than curiosity for him. Jesus was stirring something in Nicodemus. And, and they, does, they do have that encounter at night. And, and Nicodemus is sincerely trying to understand what is salvation? What is the salvation you're teaching? And Jesus, what's he say to him? You must be born again, Nicodemus. Well, we know what that means now. I didn't the first time somebody told me that, too. What do you mean? How can a man be born again twice? I pretty much said the same thing as Nicodemus. And then somebody showed me that passage. And I began to understand that it's about spiritual birth. It's about rebirth of, of, of who I am as a human being, you see. And, and, and so it could have been that this man was like Nicodemus, and he wanted to hear more but I would simply say this based on how things are going to develop at this dinner. I think it's safe to say that this is the least likely motive. I think it's safe to say that he's not really spiritually hungry. There's other motives at play. But regardless of what his motive was, Jesus does not hesitate to accept his invitation. And I think that's important. You know, we're, we're going to shortly see how part of the reason Jesus is there is, is for another divine appointment that, that he has to, to reach someone else who's going to show up at this dinner too, someone other than the host himself. And, and yet I would just say to you guys, we have to be very careful not to discount Jesus being there because he wanted to reach Simon. I believe that Jesus honestly wanted to reach Simon. I think we sometimes miss this desire on Jesus's part based on the contentiousness that exists between Jesus and the Pharisees and the words that Jesus says to them, the kinds of things they do to get at Jesus. We sometimes think that Jesus had no use for these guys whatsoever and that, that he had written them off, and yet nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Even in the heated comments he would make to them throughout his ministry, I mean, think about it. I mean, Jesus looks at these guys and calls them brood of vipers. You know, you're like tombs full of dead men's bones. And, and you, you look at those and you can begin to say, well, he, Jesus, he didn't like these guys. You know what? Jesus never wrote them off. Jesus never wrote them off. In fact, his heated dialogue with them was more than just frustration and anger as we tend to see it in the scriptures. It was actually about his care for them. Yeah, he was frustrated. 
Yes, he was angered at their spiritual arrogance and, and their blindness, and he was most certainly angry at the way they were placing men and women under spiritual burdens that God never intended for people to be under. You know, what did he tell them? You, you burden them, you know, but you don't even do the very things that you burden the people with. He was frustrated with these these men. The, the, these men had clearly developed a system of religion for themselves. And, and, and what's sad about it is they developed a system of religion that they were imposing on everybody else at the same time. And, and really at the heart of their designed religion was to keep people under their thumb spiritually so that they could be in control. And there is no doubt whatsoever that Jesus found that kind of stuff reprehensible. And, and he made no bones about calling them out over it all, saying things to them that, that he never said, that he never said to the common man or woman that he encountered. encountered. And, and I think that's an important point to understand. You know, Jesus said things to these religious leaders that he never said to the common man or woman who was unsaved or didn't know him, the common sinner, things that he did not say. And it grieves me sometimes to see too many Christians wrongly applying the scriptural rebukes of Jesus to the wrong people. You know, uh, they take the things recorded in the scriptures that Jesus said to these hypocritical spiritual leaders, to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to these men who should have known better, and they wrongly take those statements of Jesus and they apply those rebukes and they use them against the common unbeliever or the person who's caught up in in some sin, willful or unintentional either way, but they use them against them. Now, look, it's not that Jesus did not challenge common people about sin. He most certainly did, but he did so in a far gentler way than, than he did with these self-appointed spiritual leaders who wrongly took spiritual authority to themselves and abused it. There's a difference there that requires a different approach, and Jesus knew that, and he approached things people differently. The common man or woman that was caught up in in, in sinful bondage doesn't know any better, but these these men who taken spiritual authority to themselves, to proclaimed themselves to be the teachers of, of God's word and God's law, they placed themselves in a position where they should have known better, where they should have known better. They should, they should be the very ones that heed James's warning. There are people like them today that should heed this too. But they are the people that, that James's warning would absolutely apply to in James chapter 3 and verse 1. You know what James says there? He says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Why? Because we're in a position of authority. Do, do you understand that even where I stand before you guys today, and I understand this fully, uh, it's not that my salvation is stricter. It's not that Jesus is going to look at me and say, well, you, you can't be saved because you, you delivered that message poorly. You know, if that were the case, I'd be in a lot of trouble by now. I'd be the most unsaved of all. But but it's not about my salvation, but it is about reward. It is about a judgment that God gives to those who place themselves or he has placed in a position of authority and, and spiritual authority. And we're held to a higher standard in that regard. There's great grace for our lives, and yet there's a stricter standard when it comes to this. And so when you think about these people that Jesus was dealing with who had taken spiritual authority to themselves, weren't even appointed by the Lord, but took it to themselves, of course Jesus is going to hold them to a tough standard. You should know better. If you're going to stand there in the place of God and preach to the people and teach the people, then you should know better. 
And so, but, but for the common man or woman, you know, that, 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 that wasn't in those positions, a, a rebuke or an admonishment might be in order for, for sinful things that they're doing. And there is a place for calling people to repentance. I have no problem with doing that with, with my brothers and sisters in the Lord, you know, check the log in my own eye first before I go after the speck in theirs. But if there's a sin that needs to be confronted and not just as a pastor, but even as a brother in Christ, I'll come along aside of somebody and, and, and talk to them about it and to deal deal with it as gently and graciously as I can. But but how, what we cannot do is we cannot take the words of Jesus that he used against these guys and the things that they were doing and then turn around and use it on the unsaved world. You know, I hear Christians taking the statement I made earlier. We hear Jesus say, you know, you brood of vipers. I hear him applying it today to the politicians they don't like or to those in their society that, that are their neighbors that are unsafe. And it's like, man, that's an abuse of the scriptures. That's not who Jesus was talking to in the use of those words. And there was a reason he used those words on that specific group of people. I hope you understand what I'm saying, because I think it's so important. The approach matters. And, and, and the position people are in matters. And, and it needs to be tailored how we deal with people based on where they are and what their status is. And so for Jesus, yeah, he was angry with them. Yeah, he was frustrated with these guys because they should have known better. But with that said, do not think for a moment that Jesus didn't care about these wayward shepherds. He absolutely did. If he didn't care, he never would have engaged them at all. He just would have ignored them completely, but he chose not to do that. And, and he most certainly would have never accepted any invitation to dinner like this. And yet he does. Even in his caustic remarks that he will make to these, these self-appointed leaders, although there will be frustration and there will be anger in those comments, frustration and anger were not the driving force behind the things that Jesus said, even to them. He said the things he said because they needed to hear it, because they needed to hear it, and with the hope that some would be so shocked by it all that they'd come to their spiritual senses and stop doing the things that they were doing. And even though most did not, some most certainly did, right? Some most certainly did. We know that there were Pharisees other than Nicodemus, the scriptures tell us, who came to faith in Christ, other spiritual leaders who came to faith in Christ. And so, you know, Jesus cared about these guys. So, so whatever the motivation behind this invitation, it's noteworthy to me that Jesus accepts this invitation and, and even placing himself, think about this, he's even potentially placing himself at risk by going, but, but, he couldn't do any less because, as he said in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, he came to seek and save the lost, which included the wayward and contentious Pharisees. It included them as well. And yet this scene is remarkable on several levels. You know, first of all, the interaction between Jesus and this Pharisee, it's going to prove to be dramatic for those who are privy to witnessing this whole thing take place. I mean, if you ever wanted to be someplace in biblical history, just kind of be a fly on the wall, for me, this would have been one of the places I'd want to be to see what really went down, because this is pretty dramatic stuff that's taking place here. And the things Jesus will say is very simple, and yet it's piercing in regard to the point that he's making. And I mean, keep in mind, 
I mean, keep in mind on top of all of this that regardless of any sincerity on, on, on this Pharisee's motives for, for bringing Jesus there, sincerity, which is doubtful at best, these men are clearly not friends. <laughs> you know, Simon and Jesus are clearly not friends, and there's nothing in this passage to indicate that Simon is in any way a supporter of Jesus much less a believer in him and in the things that he's teaching. And that alone makes this dinner a rather unique and intriguing filled event. The, the stuff, as one person said, good movies are made of, right? This is good fare for movies. The second interesting thing in this is all of this makes it remarkable that Jesus accepted this invitation. It makes it remarkable that he accepted it. But as I just mentioned, Jesus was not averse to taking risk when the purpose for the risk was necessary. I mean, there's risk in this, right? He could go and he could be, be set up by these guys. Now, granted, Jesus is the son of God. I mean, he knows the men's hearts. He knows the motives. And yet at the same time, there's still risk that they'll twist his words. And we know that, that men will do that to him. But yet Jesus still goes because the risk was necessary. And I would argue because the Spirit was leading him to go. Even though Spirit's not mentioned here, we know that Jesus depended upon the Spirit for the things that he's doing. And so he's been led here. You know, I, I think that that's something that we should learn in our own lives, in our service for the Lord. We're not called to throw care to the wind, right? I know that there are Christians who almost put you down if you're not willing to take a risk on some things. Look, I, I'm not averse to risk, but I also understand that I'm not supposed to just throw care to the wind and just haplessly go into things. But we also aren't called to cloister ourselves away from everything that involves risk spiritually, you know, the, these same two essential ingredients that influence Jesus' decision should influence our decisions as well. Is the risk justified? Is it justified? Does it serve the greater purpose of the Lord? Does it serve, does it serve the Lord's greater purpose to have us take that particular risk, whatever it may be, you know? I've walked into places and, and shared Jesus with people in situations that could have been detrimental to my career in the military. And yet, I didn't, just didn't run around and do that every opportunity I had. I did it as, as I felt that the risk was justified to take at that moment. But I also think the second factor that plays in, because it's tied together, is the Spirit leading you to take that risk? Is the Holy Spirit leading you to take that risk, you know, the Spirit's leading was an essential part of Jesus's life and ministry. And, and we constantly find throughout the scriptures reference to Jesus being led by the Spirit, even in his temptation after the baptism. What does it say? And the Spirit led him into the wilderness where he was tempted. Jesus was dependent upon the Spirit, even though he was God in the flesh. As Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus had willingly chosen to set aside his divine capacities and to rely upon the Spirit's leading and power as he walked among men on this earth. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus ceased being God, not at all. But it does mean that he willingly chose to, to, to set aside his divine power, to set aside those divine attributes, to relate to us, and to give us a demonstration of the powerful kind of life that we can live as we yield to the Spirit's power and leading in our lives as well. And as such, when we think about that, we have to learn to be attentive to the Spirit's leading. We need to know where he's leading, and then we need to be willing to respond and to obediently follow where he's leading us. 
even when he leads us into things that might contain risk. But when risk is involved, his leading is essential, you see? His leading's essential then because far too many Christians have rushed foolishly into things in their service for the Lord, right? Only to experience catastrophic results because their flesh and not the spirit led them into that. You know, sometimes, and I'm very cautious when I say things, you know, I I feel led to do this. I always stop myself when I say that and I say, why do I feel led? Am I, is my flesh leading me or is the spirit leading me? If the spirit's leading me, how do I know it's the spirit leading me? You know, it's amazing how the spirit will confirm things to me through my study of the Bible, through the study of the word, bring a passage to mind, lining up the events, things will occur that'll be there. And, and yeah, lots of times what I find in those situations is my flesh doesn't even want to go there. It's too scary. It's too risky. But the spirit's clearly leading and I've learned to obey as we all should. You know, I'll be honest with you, this work, as funny as it is to say that when I sit and look out on just a few faces right now, you know, in the season that we're in, but don't let this fool you. You know, this is a work of the Lord and it still is, and it'll still be here after this, this whole pandemic thing is going on. You know, somebody asked me earlier, they say, what do you think we're going to look like on the back end? I'm, my answer is, I have no idea. I just know this. The Lord called us. He put us into place and I have confidence that he's going to pull us all back together and do what he's going to do on the back end of this. I have moments where I wonder about that because I'm a human being too. But at the same time, I do know that. But I would tell you that this work exists. Because the the Lord, the Spirit, just led to take a risk. I mean, who am I? You know, I'm an old army guy. What am I? What do I know about theology? Not a whole lot. You know, I'm a student of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I've spent 40 years walking after Jesus, listening to other guys teach and who've invested in me. But at the same time, you know, I'm not a guy out of some top theological seminary to go out and plant a church and do all that. And yet the Lord just put on my heart, go do this, go do this, go do this. And he began to line things up, giving confirmation in the word. And we stepped out and I stepped out by faith and I took that risk. I mean, there's risk involved, right? You could show up for your first meeting and nobody's going to come. Then what do you say? Well, do you come back to the second one? You know, maybe, you know, but it was amazing. That first meeting, there were 10 people there. The, the janitor at the facility asked us, where'd these people all come from? My answer was, I have no clue. I have no clue. I'm just doing what the Lord called me to do. We went out and we witnessed Jesus. And, you know, we only told them about us if they asked us, but we shared Jesus with people. And then I said, you know, I just came here at seven o'clock and opened my Bible and 10 people walked in, you know, but risk, it's not about the flesh. It's about the spirit. And, and, and we have to know the difference. Jesus knew. And Jesus would take the risk when it, when, when it seemed right to him to do so from the circumstances and from the spirit. But here, risk appears to mean nothing to Jesus because even though it's not stated, we can rightly assume that Jesus has been led to accept this invitation despite the risks involved because there was a purpose that was greater than the risk involved that needed to be accomplished at this meeting that's about to take place. Well, look on at verse 36. He says again, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And so having accepted this invitation, Jesus enters Simon's home and he sits down to eat. Now, it's important to understand some cultural things here. 
because you're going to relate to this passage, unless you've really studied through this, you're going to relate to this with your American Western kind of frame of mind, right? It's kind of like I invite somebody to come to my house for dinner. What are you going to do? You're going to pull out a chair, sit down at the dining room table, and we're going to eat together. Little bit different. First of all, in Jewish culture, meals were generally taken around a horseshoe table that was set very close to the ground. It's like they sawed off the leg, and it sits, it sits very, very low to the ground in a horseshoe shape. And participants would then be seated, generally three on a side, but their, their seated position would involve reclining. They, they wouldn't just sit, not even cross-legged, at the table. They would kind of recline on their left elbow, leaning out on this pillow that would be spread out around the table, and, and, and their head and arms would be toward the table, but then their feet would extend away from it. You kind of got the picture of what it would look like? Now you can kind of get a picture of what was happening at the Last Supper when it says that John was leaning against Jesus, right? That would be the normal flow because of the way they were sitting around that table. Now, now, as I said, the seating position of the table was also important at these formal dinners. We won't discuss the exact positioning of people at this one, but it will become important when we get later into the gospel and we talk about the Last Supper because I believe that there was a clear order to the seating that was taking place there. So we'll come back to that. But second, it was also not uncommon for the poor to be invited to come into a setting like this, especially a meal that would involve a guest like Jesus. And, and the poor were permitted then to come in, not only to observe the event, but, but to receive scraps of food from the table that might be left over. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.